0: the irony the the bitter tragic irony is actually that the success of the protests in a way made it all the more certain that navalny was going to be going to a labor colony
1: howdy there dear listeners you are listening to the slavic connection this is your host matt today i spoke with dr mark Galliotti. Dr. Galliotti is a London-based lecturer and writer on transnational crime and Russian security affairs and is the director of the consultancy MIAC Intelligence. He is also an honorary professor at University College London, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, as well as a senior non-resident fellow at the Institute for International Relations Prague. He is the author of a brand new book that came out just last week titled A Short History of Russia. Today, we talked about the ongoing saga revolving around Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Navalny was poisoned with a chemical nerve agent back in August. And in December of last year, it was revealed by the investigative journalism outlet Bellingcat that this was done at the hands of the FSB, Russia's internal security service. Navalny himself then released a sprawling investigation into Putin's history of corruption and most particularly a palace that he's built for himself on the Black Sea. And Navalny was imprisoned upon his return to Russia and just yesterday was sentenced to two years and eight months behind bars. We talked with Mark about what all this means for Russia Russia in the near and long term.
0: At the moment, Navalny is not standing for office. Navalny is simply standing for the kind of reform which will mean there can be proper democratic elections. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: Howdy, Mark. Hi there. How are you doing? We're good. Thanks so much for coming back on. We were pointing out beforehand that we had you on in August, right when this whole saga started. And so it's really fantastic to have you at this moment because it's kind of the, the beginning and culmination of that process.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, you know the end of part one of Lord of the Rings. You know, we know what we're in for an <laughs> epic, but there is a sense of something changing.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Movie one. Okay, well, I, I thought we would just jump right into it. Sure. So we're seeing so many reactions today. One take that I thought was particularly interesting was this idea that we've, we've woken up in a new country. This was Evgeny Roisman, and he said, we've woken up in a new country. Um, in the past, we, we knew that this was a, a fascist regime, but now this is, it, it doesn't even hide that fact anymore. What do you think about this rhetoric? Is it correct? And do you think it's the right tone that the opposition should be taking?
0: Anyway, there's two separate issues there. One is what tone should the opposition be taking? In other words, how do you spin what's happening? And then there is the question of whether it really is that major a change. Look, this is an incremental change. I don't think that this is actually something that sort of should hit us with a sort of lightning bolt type sort of epiphany. We knew that, and indeed Navalny knew, that he was going to be arrested, he was going to be tried, he was going to be sent to prison. They could not allow him to do otherwise, particularly given that the old men in the Kremlin are clearly intensely worried about looking weak. And therefore, the the irony, the the bitter, tragic irony, is actually that the success of the protests, in a way, made it all the more certain that Navalny was going to be going to a Labour colony. That said, of course, when it comes to actually how you spin it, I mean, this is it. The the opposition needs to say that this is something dramatic because they're fighting on a variety of different fronts. They're trying to use this moment to connect to as wide a proportion of Russians as possible to get beyond their usual sort of social media, middle-class metropolitan bubble. And secondly, they need to say that in some ways, how can I put this? It's not Russian's fault. I mean, this is always the interesting thing, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, for a long time Putin has enjoyed relatively high levels of approval and however rigged they were. Nonetheless, it's clear that it's not that he would have lost the presidential elections in which he stood, even if they had been honest counts. And Therefore, by Mollis saying, look, this is a whole new day, a whole new era, a whole new regime, it almost says, look, we don't have to worry about the past. We don't have to worry about who voted what. We're now at a year zero moment.
1: I think it's important to point out though, exactly why we think Navalny was given this sentence? Do we think it's because it was a protest danger for the summer leading up to the parliamentary elections? I, I saw one argument that it was the embarrassment that he's caused the FSB with this investigations about the poisoning, and that's the real reason where the, why they just couldn't let him see the light of day. What do you think is the true reason that he had to get this long sentence?
0: Well, I think the honest answer is because this happened to be the sentence they had in their back pocket waiting for him. It's not like they came up with three and a half years, less 10 months, time already served out of the air. It was because that was in a way the first in a queue of different cases that they could could easily sort of throw at him. Yes, he absolutely embarrassed the FSB, or frankly, the FSB embarrassed itself. Not least when there's a rather incautious poisoner took him at face value and continued to sort of regale him with the accounts of how he had tried to poison him when he thought Navalny was basically one of his superiors ringing up for a report. But it it was more than that. I mean, this was about the whole regime. Again, to try and sort of bring you behind the Kremlin walls and think of how it looks when you're looking out from those sort of circles. Back in in 2013, 2014, they saw a a friendly Ukrainian government fall to people power in many ways because although it could be phenomenally brutal, it was also rather stupid and inconsistently brutal. Now, at the moment, they see in Belarus, again, a sort of massive demonstration of people power and one that really has almost acquired its own momentum without leadership necessarily, but from from the, the streets. And although they have absolutely no time for Lukashenko, the the Belarusian leader, nonetheless, they feel that he, he can't be allowed to be swept away by people power because of the example that provide. They feel that the West is their sort of malign antagonist that stirs up this. And it has to be said that although to a large extent it's a convenient propaganda line, when the Russian state media claim that Navalny is nothing more than a sort of tool of the CIA, And that the American embassy was organizing the protests. Yeah, most of them, they're just saying it because it's the official line. I absolutely believe, though, that there are some in Putin's circle, the more hawkish paranoids, who genuinely think that that's true. And this is probably one of the reasons why they actually tried to poison him, because they thought that he'd moved over that indefinable barrier between enemy and traitor. So, you know, from all these reasons, when he comes back and in effect challenges them, of course they have to push back. Each time they have to have what in military terms is called escalation dominance. In other words, you need to demonstrate that whatever the, the other side can do, you can ratchet things up more than that. And This is what we've seen, because if you look at the, the amount of violence used, comparing the first day of protests and the second day of protests, and then last night, you know, each time it's got that much more vicious, and that's not just chance. That's because they decided that each time they want to show, we really can keep this up if you want.
1: Do you think that they're watching what took place in Belarus played any role in that idea to escalate the physical kinetic element of the suppression?
0: I think so, absolutely. Look, what we saw has been been obviously horrific. It has not been anything like the kind of scale, and above all, indiscriminate level that we have seen in in Belarus. And in some ways, I think what they're trying to do is actually avoid being in that position. So there is that sense of, if we can nip this in the bud now, if we can deny the protests the opportunity to build up momentum now, we don't have to go to that really high level, at which point pretty much you burnt your bridges. You you, You are, from that point, if I can mix my metaphor, sitting on a throne of bayonets, which, you know, fine, it may look pretty impressive in, in a sort of Game of Thrones outtake, but it's actually a very uncomfortable thing on which to sit. So no, th- this is why we, use, we, we see the sort of the careful strategic use of violence. Last night, after the Navalny sentence was announced, there were 8,500 police and National Guard on the streets of Moscow. Now, maybe it's because they thought there was going to be a lot more protesters, but I think in part, it was precisely to make the point to fill the place with with what they call cosmonauts, these guys in riot armour. You ask them more and they say, do you really want to take us on? Because most people are not heroes.
1: And thinking about what the Navalny team and the opposition strategy is now, it seemed to me that they're between a rock and a hard place, right? They're in a really tough position. On the one hand, they need to respond now while emotions are still running high. So, you know, they're they're going to call for protests in the near term. On the other hand, February is the coldest month in most parts of Russia and people are saying, well, is this too soon? Shouldn't we wait till it's closer to the parliamentary elections when the weather is warmer, when that topic is more on people's minds? So what, what do you think is going to be their near term strategy and how do they kind of come out of this?
0: Yeah, it is going to be difficult. They can't really just leave it until it gets warmer and sunnier and so forth. And then suddenly, oh, by the way, remember that guy, Navalny? You know, of course they, they, they have to keep things going now. But as you say, it, it is difficult. One thing they do have going for them is at end of February, beginning of March, there is the annual Nemtsov March to commemorate uh, Boris Nemtsov, the opposition leader who was gunned down in fact, right by the Kremlin, by, by Chechens. And in past years, the authorities have actually always given that approval to go ahead. So it'd be tricky for them, not impossible, but tricky to have a cost to them to actually say no this time. I mean, they presumably would invoke COVID or similar. But given that at the same time they're trying to tell their own people, no, it's all right, we've got COVID under control, it becomes harder. So almost certainly there is at least that which will give the opposition movement as a whole an extra sort of opportunity to, to boost itself. But the key thing is look, they're going to have to redefine what success means. They're not going to get a steadily in- expanding protest movement likely. Especially not if they keep holding protests with with high degrees of, of, of regularity. And if they lock themselves into this metric, if they define success just by, we had more people out on the streets than last time in more cities and so forth, well, they're more or less setting themselves up to fail. So the key thing is, is to move, is to maintain some kind of rhythm of public actions. They don't have to be mass protests, but something to keep reminding people of what's going on while they shift to a long term strategy. And this is the point. This is a long game. Nothing, you know, Putin's regime is not going to fall next month or next year, in my opinion, unless he himself decides to go or, or mortality makes the choice for him. Instead, it's about building a political movement because this is, this is the crucial thing. And, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm grabbing and hijacking your question, but you know, allow me that, that dispensation. Navalny, when he went back to Russia, he knew what was going to happen to him. I mean, there was, there was no question about that, but he he'd made it clear that he didn't want to be one of those emigre enemies of Putin who, from a comfortable birth at a think tank or as directors of a foundation or whatever in the West, encourages Russians to go and put their careers, and maybe even in the worst cases, their lives on the line by protesting this, this vicious regime. He needed to be there to, in a way, share with them the, the jeopardy. And this is crucial to making him not a dissident, but a political leader. And that is the absolutely crucial step change that, that in a way, Team Navalny now needs to do. It needs to move beyond just simply complaining and protesting, to actually being a viable opposition movement. And and politics is going to mean building up a national network, which has already started, and that but that's going to be a crucial thing. Building alliances with new groups of people, and that's again clearly there, not just the usual Navalnyites. You know, if we saw the people who came out in, to protest, many of them didn't really know much about Navalny. Some of them didn't even particularly like Navalny. That wasn't the point. It was about what I've called a coalition of the fed up. You know, it, this becomes the movement in which everyone who wants an opportunity to say, we're not happy with the status quo can get together. And the third crucial element is building alliances with other sections of the political system. So perhaps it's going to be people from the communist party, perhaps it's going to be disgruntled public servants. In due course, it might be members of the elite who are not happy with the way things are going. But again, these are all the kind of behind the scenes political actions that sure, you have to have a few protests, but you can't just simply think that that kind of people power is going to topple this regime.
1: Right. And can we maybe call his smart voting initiative part of that strategy? Because it's about, again, supporting people from the communist or the liberal Democratic Party. And so, I mean, obviously, when they do endorse these candidates, I mean, there, it is going to be this moment where, OK, you're receiving the smart voting endorsement. So there there is is pe- people are going to have to respond to this endorsement. So I think it'll engender precisely the conversations that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the interesting thing is, I mean, we saw, you know, even before, I mean, we saw this around the local elections that took place last year. It's not just the sense that Navalny will bless certain candidates as being the ones most likely to topple United Russia, the pro-Kremlin candidate, but actually you began to see the first signs of what we might think of as competition for the smart voting mandate and that's going to be absolutely crucial. It's it's when actually people are kind of looking to say, no, 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 I'm the one you should go for. But yeah, look, this is one of the interesting things about some of the discussion about Navalny, and particularly some of the discussion about, oh, is he a nationalist? Is he a racist or whatever? The point is, at the moment, Navalny is not standing for office. Navalny is simply standing for the kind of reform which will mean there can be proper democratic elections. And so, although it looks weird and counterintuitive to think of supporting, you know, some barking mad ultranationalists from the Liberal Democratic Party in the name of change, but nonetheless, that's the whole point. That you know, there, there needs to be a sort of change which will allow all these parties to become real parties with real debates.
1: One thing that I've found myself thinking about a lot recently is, what things can he do to kind of change the calculus of of this equation, so to speak? Of course, the, the second investigation on the poisoning where he talked to the FSB officer, that was a kind of a shocker moment. And then even his latest investigation of, of Putin's palace was in a sense expected that he had to do something, but the magnitude of that investigation, I think exceeded their wildest expectations. Do they release more of those in a flurry in an effort to kind of keep this, this momentum alive? What are, what are some of the things that maybe we're not seeing that they could try to do?
0: Well, there's a couple of things. One is, I think you're absolutely right that they presumably have more investigations ready to roll. And the interesting thing about this most recent one, the Putin's Palace one, was precisely because it, it crossed what hitherto had been a red line. There had been an unspoken deal that Navalny faces, obviously, pressure and um, sometimes physical attack, but is still allowed to operate under certain terms. However, at the same time, Navalny does not go after Putin or Putin's family. Everybody else in the power structure is fair game, but not Putin and not Putin's family. Now, clearly the state decided to break the deal when it tried to poison him. And as far as Navalny is concerned, clearly the gloves are off because this Putin's palace one absolutely doesn't just go after Putin, but also his daughter's acknowledged and unacknowledged, alleged daughter, unacknowledged. uh (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that makes me wonder, in a way, precisely how many other investigations might they have started, but then spiked, precisely because they thought, mm, no, this is getting too close to Putin. So it, it may well be absolutely that what we're going to see is a regular f- sort of stream of ones that, instead of targeting what are sometimes fairly obscure deputy mayor of here or, or governor of there, but actually no, are hitting you know, people around Putin. So that that's the first thing we might well see. The second sort of potential one is the whole issue of, of, of the outside world, because we have you know, Navalny's people very much pushing for sanctions in the UK, in the European Union, and in the United States. They've sent this list of names that, that Navalny himself put together to President Biden with a request that they be considered for sanctions. And again, in some ways, one of the kind of potential leverage points that, that Navalny has got is the question of. How much legitimacy he has in the West, and how much we are prepared to help him. Look, it is not the job of the outside world to try and bring about regime change in Russia. Not least because our experience of regime change has been not only that we're much better at breaking things than building them up afterwards, but that in fact, you know, it's 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 really a mug's game. But nonetheless, there is a point where actually we can recognise the legitimacy of of, of his position. and and push more. So, In a way, we could give him, even in prison, a lot more status and influence than he has had up to now, precisely because, in part, we have been hesitant to do so, well, A, because on the whole, the outside world is pretty timorous when it comes to dealing with Russia, but also because of that sense of, we didn't actually want to put Navalny into the crosshairs. We didn't want to make it too easy for them to portray him as a Western stooge. But you know that, that ship has sailed, and frankly, is way over the horizon. So we might as well, in a way, be feel liberated by that.
1: For our listeners, I point out you're you're referring to a sanctions list given by Vladimir Ashkurov, who's Navalny's representative in London, and they say that the Chelsea football club owner needs to be uh, sanctioned. You know, so the, the, these major oligarchs. Can you see a scenario where the West, uh, the EU, the United States begin to actually go after this money? I mean, I'm very skeptical that they will, although I know that Biden's team, you know, has some people who seem to take this strategic corruption and, you know, pushing back against global kleptocracy issue very seriously, at least rhetorically. I mean, the the Biden team made this more of an issue than it's ever been, at least in, in United States politics. Do you think we actually could see anything like that?
0: Well, we have to realise that obviously, I mean, given that Biden's team is in many ways Obama 2.0, especially when it comes to the foreign policy sort of side of things. And and these are people who have an axe to grind because of how they interpret what happened in 2016. So in some ways, I mean, there is an extent to which they will be looking at this favourably. Look, I mean, I imagine that the United States, certainly the UK, probably, and the European Union, maybe, Will bring in some personal sanctions. It's a question of exactly sort of how many, how deep, which people. Are. And in some ways, that long list of thirty-five names, which includes everyone from you know security officials to oligarchs, is almost like um, a menu. I mean, it's not. I don't think they necessarily expect that all of them are, are going to be hit. But it's more or less a list of well, h- here you go. You know, pick off the buffet that that, that you particularly like. The thing is though, I mean, firstly, look, there is a, a serious question about how much uh, individual sanctions, actually, you know, personal sanctions, actually do affect policy. I mean, this, as far as Putin is concerned, is an existential threat. You know, he feels that the West is trying to deny Russia its rightful status as a great power. And in that case, if, if some people who are billionaires, because basically they have stolen billions from the Russian state, if they lose a few tens or even hundreds of millions, well, that's just the price of political, political war. You know, they're still doing okay. However, if we don't, the trouble is then it will be a signal to Russia. The Russian, or the Kremlin rather, already believes that in the West we are sanctimonious hypocrites, that we talk a great talk about democratic values and so forth, and then we go and buy our Chinese made iPhones. And um, you know, cuddle up to the Saudis when they want to buy new fighter jets and everything else. This will absolutely seem to justify what the Kremlin thinks of us. It will think, "Look, we don't need to worry too much. Sure, they will huff and they will puff when we do something particularly vicious and oppressive, but they don't really care. They've signaled that." So anyway, we must make sure we don't do that. So these personal sanctions, if nothing else, they are a chance for us to demonstrate what really matters to us. But I think the point is that we need to think about how we move beyond that. Sanctions are the tool we reach for every single time, and everybody knows that. Everyone has already kind of game planned what the potential outcome is. If we are going to have any impact on Russian policy, one of the things we have to do is be imaginative and be unexpected.
1: You had a piece come out in the Moscow Times today titled, Navalny also needs to reach out to Russia's men in gray suits. I'm wondering the extent to which this idea of sanctioning oligarchs works with or against this idea of reaching out to men in gray suits and elites. I mean, if you're trying to sanction highest members of the elite, I mean, it's going to be harder to reach out to those people, certainly. And just in general, how do you think Navalny can kind of engender some support and more public solidarity or understanding from the elite? I mean, for me, it seems like an, a task that is nearly impossible to achieve, but do, do you see any ways that he could at least attempt to 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 kind of woo some of these people in the elite?
0: Yes, but I think it's again, it's a long-term process. I mean, first of all, it's worth noting that there are already people within the elite who are sympathetic to and supportive to Navalny. You know, who perhaps slipped him some money sometime to keep his foundation working, sometimes slipped him information. I mean, probably also as a way of undermining business rivals or, or whatever. But nonetheless, look, there's a lot of people within the system. Once you get beyond Putin's very, very close immediate circle, which is basically a mix of, you know, cronies who have been sort of rewarded dramatically and similarly minded hawkish veterans of the old KGB, who are in that same sort of homo Sovieticus generation, who sort of st- are still really motivated by this sense of, we need to get back to where we were in the sense of a, a, a great power. But once you move beyond that, there is a whole new world of, you know, basically pragmatic cynics, who at the moment, they absolutely, they have a portrait of Putin in their public office, and they... Do whatever else needs to be done. And if that means saying that Crimea is ours, or if that means building a new church, you know, whatever is required, they will do it because that's the price of doing business. But they don't do it because they care. Now, in that context, and if we go back to this men in gray suits, and maybe just, just for the listeners, I mean, I should explain. I mean, this is a very much, it's a it's a British idiom that goes back to the downfall of longtime Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who precisely was beginning to become more and more toxic for her own party refused to step down until precisely a kind of delegation of the great and the good, shall we say, but you know, grandees within her own party sort of basically induced her to step down and more said, look, you know, that's it, your time, your time has gone. They were hardline Thatcherites until the day when it was no longer convenient or useful to them. And that's the point where they, they induced her to stand down. And precisely they're the ones who could do so, because precisely they were her inner circle. So, I mean, in this context, again, it is not going to be quick, but one of the things that we can do, to link that back to the issue of sanctions, is sure, in the short term, sanctions actually perversely strengthens the regime. Because all these people who are under sanctions, they now depend all the more on the money that they can gain in Russia, which means that they depend all the more on Putin's patronage. However, in the longer term, there comes a point when it becomes harder and harder to share out the pie. In such a way as to keep people happy. I mean, we know that we're after in, in 2014, with the annexation of Crimea and the intervention into the Donbass, there was a whole tranche of personal sanctions levied, and we know that basically the, the cronies who are closest to Putin were basically recompensed for their losses. They got you know, new contracts and everything else. But a whole bunch of other people had to take it on the chin, just simply as the, well. That's that. That's what happens, and and people grumble about that. People have noticed that nowadays Putin's cronies are much, much less constrained. I, I remember, I mean, once not too far, not too long ago when I was in Moscow, back in the days when we couldn't actually travel, talking at a sort of business event with someone who, you know, from my standards, is obscenely wealthy. I'm not sure if he's tens of millions or hundreds of millions, but nonetheless, you know, in, in that, for me, pretty stratospheric mode, who was actually saying that he had further business opportunities. But he was not minded to take them up precisely because he didn't want to get too successful. He didn't want to be too visible because at that point, one of the apex predators in the system might be tempted to use his leverage to basically take over this guy's business. You know, I think there is a lot of grumbling, even from people who are doing really well within the system. And the question is, at what point will they begin to decide that Putin is a liability? The thing is that with the increasing securitization of the economy, with what's likely to be a sort of, you know, long-term chill in relations with the West, you know, for all kinds of reasons, there is going to be a sustained squeeze on the system. You know, the Russian economy is not collapsing or anything like that. I mean, even last year with, with coronavirus, I mean GDP just fell by 3.1 percent, which is, obviously unfortunate for the Russians, but entirely bearable. But on the other hand, it's even more about the fact of rich and powerful people who begin to actually feel that either they're at risk. Or their lives aren't the way they want, or just simply that they increasingly get fed up with being squeezed out of social activities in the West, or the chance to take advantage of new business opportunities, of all these kinds of things. People are constantly making a cost-benefit analysis. At the moment, the risks of opposing Putin are vastly greater than the potential gain. Navalny has to think, over the coming years, and we are talking years, Of precisely how he can bit by bit shift the equation. And again, that's something we can help with with. If if there's a whole series of personal sanctions, what we can do is make it clear that, you know, were there moves to shift towards the kind of reforms that Navalny is advocating, and were Navalny to personally intercede for some of these individuals, we would consider lifting those sanctions. You know, this is a way in which we do actually have some kind of very limited, but definite leverage on the system.
1: So you mentioned that this is going to be a multi-year process, which I absolutely agree with. The two events that clearly stick out on that road are the 2021 parliamentary elections, Duma elections, and of course, the 2024 presidential elections. Let's start with the first of those, the Duma elections. We obviously know that the Kremlin is trying to bring in these new parties to parliament. One of them is even called New People, belying the obvious idea that they understand finally that there is this desire for new faces in political corridors. What are your expectations for these parliamentary elections? Do you think we will see these new parties in parliament? And I mean, will they change anything? And finally, we, we saw that in the previous September, there was local elections where a few, just literally, I think two Navalny people in Novosibirsk, I believe it was, or Tomsk, made it into like a, a local parliament. Is there any possibility for electoral breakthroughs by members of the real opposition?
0: Well, the honest answer to that is no, but that doesn't mean that it's pointless. Look, the thing about Russian elections in the current system is... What matters is not the final result, because the final result will be whatever the Kremlin decides the final result is going to be. The real question is, how much effort does the Kremlin have to put in to getting the result that it wants? How many sweeteners does it have to promise beforehand? How much administrative resource, i.e. repression and pressure, does it have to apply against opposition candidates? And when it comes down to it, you know, how much Ballot box stuffing and similar falsification—does it have to do on the day? So, in some ways, the aim of the Navalny campaign is not to win the elections because they know that, or, or even win seats, because they know that the Kremlin can block that. It is rather to force the Kremlin into making a counterproductively massive effort to do so. And let's be honest—I mean, again, I, I don't think that this is going to be a likely outcome. But it's worth noting if we look once again to Belarus. That what triggered this whole popular revolution is precisely the over obvious falsification of an election result. So, in this case, the thing is, the Kremlin has already uh, hamstrung itself because it already has made it clear that it wants once again to be able to maintain its supermajority. So, in other words, that United Russia actually has an absolute majority in in the Duma. Now, again, that that's possible because. They get to, to, to count the votes. But in some ways, what it means is either they are therefore vulnerable to a campaign which will make them have to do a lot of, of, of rigging, or they accept that, look, they don't actually need United Russia to have a total majority because of the other kind of fake opposition parties like, as we mentioned, the Communists and the Liberal Democrats, who will always vote along on, on key votes. But nonetheless, that will inevitably look like a failure. I mean, the the irony is that they can still dominate the Duma and yet be considered to have lost the elections. Right. So they put themselves in a a, a tough position. I mean, I'm not shedding any bitter tears for them. It's all, (laughs) all all their own fault. But ironically enough, these elections do count precisely for that reason.
1: One political scientist, Yekaterina Shulman, said a while ago that what happened in Belarus in 2020 is Russia 2024. The idea being that by 2024 presidential elections, the Russian opposition movement will have expanded and matured enough to the point where it could, in theory, attempt a Belarus-style scenario. Do you believe that Belarus is the roadmap for Navalny's team and the Russian opposition more broadly? obviously with clear adjustments. But if, again, if electoral successes look increasingly off the table, then it seems like they say, I don't want progress in 10 years. If I can have it in four, we might as well just put all our chips on the table for, for that time frame." What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, to start with the, the direct parallel, I mean, Yekaterina is a very, very shrewd observer of, of, of Russian politics. And, and if she turns out to be wrong, then, then I will have words with her because she'll have disappointed me. Joking apart, I think it's one of the possibilities. I mean, I don't actually think that, as it were, Belarus is the desired roadmap for the opposition, because if we look at what's happening in Belarus today, it's, it, it's very unpleasant. And to be perfectly honest, if it comes to an outright battle for who controls the streets, the Kremlin has been preparing for this since the Bolotnaya protests of 2011-2012. Um, you know, it's worth noting, after all, that, you know, defence budgets have pretty much plateaued these days, but the, the National Guard, the Raskovardia's budgets are still going up there is a much greater density, frankly, of public order forces in Russia than in Belarus. So, you know, I don't think anyone would want to see that happen. However, yeah, that is absolutely a possibility. And this is why Navalny is dangerous, not because Navalny himself, though in theory, he could actually be let out five months before the uh, elections on, on sort of the current timetable. I suspect they'll wait and see. They, they have no trouble in kind of conjuring new charges if they want to keep him in. And anyway, he couldn't stand for president, given the law says that if you've been convicted of a criminal offence, you're, you're not eligible. But still, I think they, they will definitely want him out of the way until after those elections. Of course, this does beg though the other question, which is will Putin be standing? Now I reckon that actually this current bout of protest makes it more likely than he will. I mean, I'm still of the view that actually Putin doesn't really enjoy the job anymore. And, and you know, if he could find uh, some pliable, sufficiently efficient, but above all, sufficiently loyal person, he felt he could sort of dump the job onto while he, you know, goes and enjoys, well, I would say his new palace, but it turns
1: out it's not his after all. <laughs> Well, I should say with the rottenberg revelation that he's actually the owner for me that seemed like a step towards kind of a an informal recognition that he wants to use this palace in some capacity because obviously this is somebody so close to Putin I mean it would never be public but you know there, there was something of that nature it seemed going on to me
0: yeah but you see Rottenberg says it's it's going to be an apartment hotel though and I don't I don't think Putin really wants to be paying rent the thing is though I mean this is it he he probably would want to now. The, for me, the key question was: you know, Putin is not a man who trusts easily, and who also he's clearly a man who has a certain hubris, a certain sense that when it comes down to it, you know, he is the man that Russia needs. And therefore, I was unconvinced that he'd ever actually quite be be able to trust someone enough. And I think, in some ways, this makes that even less likely. So, I, I'm, unfortunately, I think that although I don't believe Putin would want to be standing as he could two whole new more terms, 12 years, nonetheless, I think he probably will be standing in 2024. And, and this will be the, therefore one of the interesting issues because let's, again, let's say that the elections are managed because they're going to be. It's not like Putin's going to allow himself to lose. It's not like actually Putin will allow any credible alternative candidate to stand. You know, we, we will have, you know, Zhirinovsky of the Liberal Democrats, you know, hobbling there with his Zimmer frame walker. And if Zhuganov is still there, you
1: know. Norov leading the opposition. This is the head of the group, Leningrad, so who's been teasing political uh, desires, but...
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to be a, re- a real election. but. Again, if the real vote shows a collapse of Putin support, either because people don't want to go out to vote at all, or because they vote just as a protest for opposition candidates, Putin will obviously still get elected because that's the result that they'll publish. But again, it might well torpedo him below the waterline. It might well make him look like political dead man walking, which is exactly the kind of thing that tends to kind of galvanize the cynical pragmatists around him. Because you know, the last thing they want is the risk of this system collapsing, because that's when they might lose their money or they might end up hanging from lampposts. So they want a managed transition. So I think the interesting thing is you might say, Yes, we could see Belarus as as a result after twenty twenty four, but we could actually also see this as the moment when Putin at once scores a triumph and secures his own downfall.
1: want to touch on Belarus just a little bit. Obviously, Lukashenko is having his all Belarusian national assembly uh, from February 11th to 12th, where at first it looked like there was going to be some unveiling of like a political reform process. But now they're just as we expected, just delay, 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 push it back, push it back, push it back. First off, what what do you think is going on in Belarus? And second, is there any way that the development of the situation in Belarus could affect things going on in Russia, particularly this summer?
0: Well, the truth of the matter is that Lukashenko, a man for whom the term wily seems to have been coined, has precisely once again seized the opportunity to try and put back any prospect of reform. I think he understands that, again, authoritarian regimes, one of the most difficult things for an authoritarian regime to do is to try and manage its own reform process. That very rarely happens. Quite frankly, and this is a sort of a handy life life hack, if you ever find yourself as a dictator, do not be tempted to reform. Better, bloodily, to hand, just to hold on to power. So I think, you know, that, that's what he's aiming to do. Now, the interesting thing is clearly, until recently, Moscow,
1: for whom, you know,
0: frankly, they they don't like Lukashenko, they don't trust Lukashenko. They reluctantly support him because they can't afford to let streets seem to win. He was
1: the definition of somebody torpedoed below the waterline, as you were saying. He was dead man walking, but it looks like a dead man can walk for a pretty long time these days.
0: Exactly. This is the, the, the days of the zombie apocalypse in, in Belarus. But the things from the Russians' point of view, I think they were trying to, tr- to ease him out. Again, I think they wanted to be able to replace him with someone who was loyal and not as toxic. The trouble is, and in this respect, ironically, Navalny has probably done the Belarusian people no favours, precisely because Moscow is now so concerned about the potential risks if it looks like the street wins that I suspect that they, and I'm sure Lukashenko will be encouraging them in this, that they will feel that they basically have to keep the status quo going, and therefore the the pressure that they were pushing, putting on Lukashenko behind the scenes, to begin some kind of managed transition has probably slackened, and therefore I suspect, again, it means that we're going to have a certain amount of sort of song and dance, perhaps literally thinking of the recent pictures of of, uh, Lukashenko ballroom dancing. But I don't think we're really going to see anything meaningful come out of this. And that means again, once again, that it means that the street will have to take the initiative. And it'll be interesting to see what both the, the Opposition Coordinating Council, in, and it's currently now in exile in the West, or the Belarusian people themselves, how they'll react to this disappointment.
1: You have a new book out. It's called A Short History of Russia. Tell, tell us about this book. Who, who is the audience and what are you trying to do with this book? Well,
0: I mean, the audience is basically people who've, who've heard about Russia and they know Russia's important, but they don't really know much about it and, and, and they would like to. So it's, you know, it's meant to be for the, I don't know, the intelligent lay reader, the you know, person who, who, who reads a, a newspaper that actually has some news in it rather than just sport and, and maybe even be sort of full-sized on and probably the, the, the specialist in Russian history will, will, will shed a tear reading it because clearly to try and squeeze all of Russia's history into 200 pretty short pages, it was on the one hand, great fun to write precisely because it forces you to think about the the grand sweep. And it was also absolutely heartbreaking because you know clearly as a Russian nerd, there was all kinds of additional details and nuance and complexity that I really wanted to fit in, but couldn't. And and therefore, the key thing is you end up treating Russia as if it's a character. Okay, not with a sort of a direct arc, not least because fortunately it doesn't end in a death. But in some ways, as if you're looking at how the the evolutionary process of of, of this this state, this nation, this people continued. So really, it's meant to be you know one long train journey, and you've read it, and it'll just give you a sense from Rurik arriving on Lake Ladoga all the way through to Putin. And that's one of the interesting things. I mean, Putin gets less than a chapter, which some people have been saying, well, you know, why not more about Putin? And I'm saying, well, actually, in, in the grand scheme of things, he's just another czar. You know, why? I mean, if, if all of Soviet times gets, gets one chapter, I really don't think Putin deserves more.
1: And did you find yourself making historical parallels or feeling a desire to make connections between the the present and the past? Obviously, I know that Navalny at his speech in the court, he said that we should call Putin Vladimir the, the poisoner, trying to again summon that historical conscience and situate Putin in that way. Did you have any desire to do that? Did you have to suppress that in the book?
0: Oh, no, I, I, I did the, quite the opposite. I indulged it mercilessly. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is that after you know, we know that history is one of the few things that Putin himself reads and actually cares about. And he himself likes to situate himself in history. Because I think, again, it says something about where his, his mind is at. You know, he, from time to time, will sort of parallel himself with whether it's Peter the Great, or whether it's Prime Minister Stalipin, who's kind of the last gasp chance of Tsarist Russia. And I remember hearing a story from from someone I I know who's at uh, Moscow State University, historian at Moscow State University, who said that there are all kinds of awards that are given to academics, and on the whole, Putin staffs it out, but not to historians. And almost invariably, he will ask the historian whom he's giving the order of whatever to, in a hundred years' time, how will they be talking about me? And you know, obviously, it's a very very awkward question to be asked by the despot of your country. But it also again tells us something about Putin's mindset. And I think particularly what, what I found so interesting, and this is where we you know we can draw the parallels, is Putin is in some ways at the moment trying to recreate a convenient state sanctioned Russian version of Russian history in which he cherry picks the bits he likes to try and give this sense of an unbroken trajectory of greatness. So, you know, it doesn't matter if this, this guy's a czarist officer and that guy's a Soviet one, if this is a czar and this is a general secretary you know, if it fits this notion of the exceptionalism of the Russian people, the ways that in some ways the Russian people have earned themselves the right to greatness through their sacrifices, and above all, through defending civilization, whether it was from the Mongols, whether it was from Napoleon, or whether it was from Adolf Hitler, you know, basically, we Russians, we did that, and therefore you owe us. You know, it's very pervasive. And one of the themes of the book is actually how Russians, and of course, Russians are not unique in this, but how Russians have periodically reinvented their history to make sense of their present and to try and build themselves a future. And even, you know, I mentioned Uriurik, this this Viking chieftain who arrives. You know, the Vikings had been traveling through Russia on the way to you know, this the second Rome Byzantium along the long, long river routes for some time. And they thought, oh, actually, this this land there's these scattered Slavic tribes. So basically it's us as for the taking. And so, you know, the the starts of what we think of as Russia is really in in conquest by these Varangian princes and chieftains. But that has been reimagined that the Slavs turned to them and said, you know, basically, our our land is great, but we have no order. Come rule over us. So they took conquest and they almost turned it into a Russian triumph. And likewise, we see this time and time again. Well, I mean, you know, one can see the Battle of Kulikova you know his first big victory of of russians against the mongols now two years later the mongols come back and they sack and burn moscow but that doesn't matter because the history is and it was done you know constructed at the time by you know dmitry donskoy the prince of, the, of moscow at the time you know he had his spin doctors who happened to be called you know church chroniclers to to give the right sense catherine the great spinning Russia as some kind of enlightened uh, state to the, the, the great philosophers of France who, let's face it, never came to, to Russia to actually see what it was really like. Time and time again, I, I could go on as you can tell, time and time again, you, know, you actually have had Russians recreating their history in this way. So in that respect, you know, Putin is just doing what, what many a czar or general secretary has already done. The trouble is he's doing so in the age of, of the internet, so
1: we all know about it. And Navalny's trying to, to counteract that by doing the same thing but in a totally different
0: Oh Navalny's so good at this kind of thing. It's like, I mean, at the same time, he several times in his really very impressive speech, delivered in, in court as he was being sentenced, talked about, you know, the little man cowering in his bunker. And you you just know that that's going to become a meme. You know, this is it. Navalny's very good. He 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 is very, in this respect, 21st century. And this is again the fascinating thing, it's such a generational shift the 44-year-old post-Soviet politician against the 68-year-old Homo Sovieticus. You know, they, they, they really are from totally different traditions using totally different instruments. Navalny really understands 21st century politics.
1: Well, Mark, as always, this has been absolutely fantastic. So thanks so much for coming on and we hope... Oh, it's always a great pleasure. And anyway, let me hype my book so I'm in debt to you. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit Slavexradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.